coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea. I don't know anyone who flies drones that hasn't executed what we used to call the walk of shame. When <laughs> You've got to go, you know, find your drone that you just crashed and go pick it up and take a look and see what could be salvaged from it. Does the aerodrome support out-of-the-box ideas? There was a great demo of a little robotic vehicle driving around on the ground with a drone sitting on top of it and the drone would take off and fly above the vehicle and while the vehicle drove around the drone would stay right above the vehicle and could land back down on top of it while it was moving. So really neat stuff to watch. This episode of Here's an Idea is brought to you by Futech Advanced Sensor Technology. Futech helps leading innovators shape the future by providing custom sensing and test measurement instruments for groundbreaking applications. Futech's solutions push the limits of measurement capabilities and development to reinvent and redefine sensor technology. Go to www.futech.com to learn more. Welcome to another special edition of Here's an Idea, where each month we're talking to people who are doing exciting work in the fields of space and aerospace. Today on the podcast, we're excited to have Tim McConnell. Tim McConnell is the robotics and UAV specialist at the Contextual Robotics Institute at UC San Diego. He's been responsible for overseeing the design of the on-campus testing facility known as the Aerodrome, created in 2017. So we're going to talk to him today about how the Aerodrome is being used. Tim, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. So, Tim, before we talk about the aerodrome, uh, let's talk about the Contextual Robotics Institute. What is that? Sure. It's a very exciting place that's uh, started up a few years ago. Both the uh, dean of the Department of Engineering and the chancellor at UC San Diego are very excited about robotics. And there's so much happening here in San Diego that they really wanted to establish sort of a basis of robotics uh, research and development on the West Coast. And so they recruited away a, a robotic superstar, Henrik Christensen from Georgia Tech to come here and form the Contextual Robotics Institute and to really bring in some top-notch robotics thinkers and researchers and try to capitalize on all the great facilities here in San Diego to be able to do robotics development, not only to push the edge of research, but to really be able to drive technologies that will have a real impact on society going forward. So you put all these all-stars in the same room. What makes something like the aerodrome happen? Well, when you start talking about robotics, you know, it's, a, it's such a broad field and there are so many things involved in it um, that there's a lot of different types of research areas going on. But the idea of using uh, UAVs or drones for useful function in society has really become so prevalent recently and there are all sorts of challenges with being able to do research with drones, particularly here in San Diego, where there's lots of uh, airports and military facilities and things. It's you know a challenge to find places to fly drones around. So we wanted to come up with a concept of a place where you could freely fly drones and do research without having to worry about uh, getting authorization from the FAA or the military. So that was the, the basis of the concept. So what does the aerodrome look like? I know that there's a net, and that's about all I know. So what does it look like? Sure. So the idea is it's a combined indoor-outdoor testing facility. Most of the research right now is being done outdoors, 
but it's completely encased with a, a net sort of like you would see at a golf driving range or a baseball field that is almost see-through, but it's you know tight enough that it would keep any drones from flying away. And so the beauty of that is that you're outdoors, you can see your GPS satellites, and you can fly as though you were outdoors, but technically by FAA rules, it's a contained space, and so you don't have to worry about any of the FAA authorizations to fly out there. And so what's being tested exactly? The idea is to be able to take a system that may not be fully characterized yet and that may not be entirely predictable but is uh, protected by the net and to be able to fly it around and capture research information and data from the drone flights. Uh, the aerodrome is instrumented with some high-precision data capture equipment to be able to determine where objects are inside the aerodrome and to be able to very accurately um, position those things and compare them to the result data that's coming from the drones. What's maybe the wildest idea you've seen tried out in the aerodrome? Does the aerodrome support kind of these out-of-the-box ideas? It does. It does. There's some some really neat research that's being done by uh, a few of the folks at UCSD on being able to combine different types of robotic vehicles in sort of a, a team uh, working environment. So for example, if you wanted to have you know several drones that were all flying together and coordinated and speaking to each other to know where they are, that's really a nice place to do that. But one of the things I've seen that's, that's really neat is to use a UAV and a UGV, that's an unmanned aerial vehicle and an unmanned ground vehicle, and have those work together. And there was a great demo of a little uh, robotic vehicle driving around on the ground with a drone sitting on top of it and the drone would take off and fly above the vehicle and while the vehicle drove around the drone would stay right above the vehicle and could land back down on top of it while it was moving. So really neat stuff to watch. So let's use that as an example. What does that kind of demonstrate about the applications uh, that we can maybe expect in the future with drones and coordinating them? Oh, well, there's just a ton of applications that come from that type of technology. If you're at all familiar with uh, flying drones, um, generally they have sort of safety mechanisms and return-to-home mechanisms. So if you're out in your backyard and you're flying around and, and suddenly you kind of lose control and the drone's off flying down the street, um, you can hit a button or have an automatic gating mechanism in the drone that will tell it, hey, you've gone too far, come back and land where you started, and it'll come back to your backyard and land where you are. Well, that's great if you're in your backyard, but not so good if you're, for example, on a fishing boat using your drone to look for swarms of fish, you know, because if the drone comes back to where it took off from and your boat has drifted 100 yards away, you've suddenly got a wet, salty drone, and that's not good. So the idea of being able to communicate with uh, multiple vehicles and to be able to find things that are moving gives you great value to be able to say, okay, take off from the back of this boat or from the back of this truck and then go find that vehicle to land again wherever it's gone to. And that's great for you know fishing applications. Um, there's lots of military applications that are very interested in that. Um, you could picture you know, border patrol trucks that might have drones flying up over the border while they're driving along um, and having the drone follow them around. What's maybe the most typical task being tested in the aerodrome? Really trying to refine uh, exact positioning is one of the things that, that everyone's focused on because that's such an important thing when you're starting to think about drones really working their way into societal applications is you have to know where that drone is all the time. 
And, you know, in the perfect world, you're out in an open space and you've got GPS satellites and those can help you um, find your way around with pretty good accuracy. But, you know, in a lot of cases, you're in a situation where you can't have good access to the satellites or there's cloud cover or maybe you've flown inside or under a roof somewhere. And it's so important to not ever lose control of where the drone is. So being able to very accurately determine position and determine how you're moving compared to other important things is, is a critical thing to be testing there. Can you give me a sense of the teams that are involved in a test? Who's running these tests? You know, where are you? And maybe some of these um, the kind of leaders that you mentioned before. There's um, a lot of different research teams at UCSD. So generally, you know, they're, they're under the guidance of uh, one of the professors from the, generally from the mechanical engineering department or uh, the aerospace department and lots of connections with the Contextual Robotics Institute. And all of those professors have labs with uh, PhD candidates working in them and then undergraduate students that are working for the PhD candidates. So they might come as a group and be testing out some, some concept they've developed in the lab. Or sometimes it's just students that are, you know, trying out something new and that have, you know, in their spare weekend time are, are building some cool new drone technology. And the beauty of the aerodrome is it's, it's open and available to anyone on campus. They just have to basically get on the schedule and get in there and they can start flying around. Is there an excitement in the air when these tests are happening? I imagine there's a, even just the name itself, and I just think of the enthusiasm of students. What's kind of the, the mood as these tests are happening? Oh, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, everyone, you know, loves to see, see things flying around. And, you know, the aerodrome's in a nice spot in a very accessible place in campus. So there's always people walking by that can stop and, and watch things flying around. And it's, it's just such new, cool technology, and there's so many potential applications for it that it's a lot of fun and very exciting for everyone. How has the aerodrome supported drone navigation and communication strategies for the future? Thinking about exact positioning is very important, but also um, the concept of being able to detect and avoid other obstacles is a very important thing. Right now, in general, you're really only allowed to fly drones outside when you're in direct visual line of sight of what you're flying and not flying over things. And that's because we haven't established really a level of autonomy and trust in the drones where people and society and the FAA can all trust that, you know, when you send a drone out to do a mission, it's going to get there. It's not going to run into things. It's not going to get in the way of aircraft and it's going to find its way back. And those are critical things that really still need some more work. And the, the aerodrome is a great place to be testing those uh, in a safe environment. What technologies are critical for drones to operate uh, in busy environments? If you're trying to remotely pilot a vehicle, you're not going to be able to see everything that's going on around the vehicle. And these things, um, while they're cute and fun, they're pretty dangerous. You've got, you know, pretty sharp propellers spinning around at 5,000 RPM. So you really do not want a drone running into things. And also they're expensive and you don't want to lose them or crash them. So for the drone to be able to detect what's going on around it, what types of things are happening, and to be able to quickly respond and avoid um, any sort of collision is going to be the key to getting us to where we can use these in crowded urban environments. That makes me think too, what kind of measures are in place to make sure that, you know, you want, you want to try out these ideas, but you also want to make sure you're not trashing expensive equipment. So how do you make sure that uh, the equipment is kind of taken care of? 
<laughs> Very carefully. Uh, I don't know anyone who flies drones that hasn't executed what we used to call the walk of shame. <laughs> when you've got to go, you know, find your drone that you just crashed and go pick it up and take a look and see what can be salvaged from it. But getting well-trained on how to fly and how to manage the thing safely and then being able to build in fail-safe measures for the drone so that it can always find a safe landing spot and get itself down are, are really important. What is the drone that's being used for these tests? Lots of different types of drones can be used. The big name in uh, drone development for um, consumer drones is DJI. Um, so lots of people test with those, but a typical test in, in the aerodrome is really being flown with a drone that was developed in a lab. The nice thing about drone technology is it's very easy to build one. Everything is off the shelf. You can buy some motors and propellers and, and controllers, and you can put together your own drone with you know instructions you find off the internet. And the researchers are trying to do new and fun and interesting and creative things. So... They're using 3D printers to build their own drone bodies, and they're trying different experiments with different types of propellers and things. So generally, you're, you'll see things that are custom-made for someone's research. What are some of the applications that you envision uh, for drones? That's a great question, and it's, it's so interesting because that's been such an evolving discussion since the time when I first started at 3D Robotics, you know, figuring out... What are good things for drones to do and what are things that will be really hard for drones to do? You know, when we first were doing it, people were talking about delivering pizzas and things. I don't really see that as being, you know, useful or, or practical. But to be able to get something from one place to another very quickly is, is such a, a wonderful and critical application. So some of the testing that you see with being able to um, for example, carry a blood sample or an organ or medicine quickly from one hospital to another across town and, you know, reducing time so quickly to make that happen. Or to be able to deliver medication to a remote place, you know, in a, if you're, you know, somewhere in the outback in Australia or, you know, somewhere in the, in the bush in South America or Africa and be able to get some medicine to somebody quickly, those are great uh, applications for it. Search and rescue is also another really good application because you can get aerial coverage of a place that's really hard to access on foot. So if you've got someone lost in the wilderness, you know, drones are great for being able to go capture data, drop critical supplies to somebody. So those are some of the nice ones that pop to mind. Agriculture has a lot of good potential use for drones uh, to be able to detect the health of crops and to be able to um, deliver uh, materials to your to your crops as well, so that farmers are very interested in them. The list goes on, but the, you know, for every application that you think of, there are some exciting ideas that come with it, and then as you start to develop it, there's always challenges that make you think, hmm, is this really the best use for a drone or not? So that will continue to evolve. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Futec Advanced Sensor Technology specializes in the research and development of sensors that measure force, torque, or pressure. For the past three decades, Futec has had the privilege to work with leading institutions such as NASA on groundbreaking missions like the 2012 Curiosity Mars rover and the upcoming Viper lunar rover. To find out more about how Futec's solutions and capabilities help support innovation in aerospace, visit www.futech.com 
to check out applications like a multi-axial torque sensor and instrumentation system for quadcopter propeller testing, or the use of force measurement in the launch mechanisms of unmanned aerial vehicles. You can also explore over 100 application concepts across multiple industries, illustrating the limitless possibilities of Futech's products. Go to futech.com to learn more. And now back to our interview with Tim McConnell. So are these applications that you mentioned, can they actually happen now? I mean, how mature is the technology to be able to realize these kinds of applications? Some of them are technologically feasible, and there are some good experiments going on right now. The challenges are both technical and regulatory. So, you know, there are uh, very closely supervised tests going on right now of being able to deliver medical supplies, for example. But there's such a patchwork of regulations from federal down to state and local that to be able to get the technology to a level and get the regulators to a level of understanding and confidence that we can say, okay, we're, we're good to have these drones start flying around on a regular basis is something that we, we haven't quite gotten to yet. Uh, but I think that the technology really is there or is you know, getting very close to being able to do some of these things well. And when you say close, what's the toughest part technologically to get right? Navigation, location, and obstacle detection and avoidance is, is what's going to be critical, you know, because one mistake out of, you know, a thousand good flights can really be catastrophic. So you need to have what people would consider to be foolproof systems and a lot of testing to show, hey, I can fly this thing in an environment and there's just no way it's ever going to, you know, run into the windshield of a school bus or, you know, fall down in front of a moving train or or anything like that. So a lot of testing, a lot of proof of concept, and then a lot of um, training of the legislative authorities to understand when we're really at a point where it's, it's reasonable to let these things start doing these activities. You mentioned that one of the biggest challenges is obstacle recognition and avoidance. Do you think there's technologies ready to address that kind of challenge? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's certainly technologies uh, that are ready um, the trick is to find a technology that's um, the right size, the right weight, and the right price to make it practical for what you can use, right? I mean, you've got lots of great uh, systems on your um, semi-autonomous vehicles, for example, using LIDAR and radar and other things. Uh, some of those things are somewhat expensive and somewhat um, weighty. And so to be able to get the right technology to be able to do all this on a small vehicle where every gram costs you flight time um, is what becomes more challenging. And so um, in my mind, the, the best uh, goal is to be able to use a lot more computing intelligence and less of the uh, physical technologies to be able to do these activities. I mean, in theory, you could do it all just with visual data. You know, you could walk around amongst a crowd of people and moving vehicles and you don't run into things and all you're using is your eyes to figure it out. Um, we ought to be able to do that, but that requires, you know, some really heavy duty AI and vision processing to be able to make sure you're doing a, a great job recognizing everything and not crashing into things. So that's, that's my picture is that this is gonna be largely visual based systems and having very intelligent devices. 
And again, the intelligence also has some cost as far as, you know, the amount of compute and, uh, and memory you need, which have weight and, uh, and power uh, usage. So I think that 5G is going to be a big help in that realm as well, because suddenly you'll have much faster, more reliable communication. So you don't necessarily have to do all of that computing on board. You can be passing data quickly back and forth to some type of ground station that can help with the, the heavy duty processing. One question I wanted to ask was about 5G. You mentioned it before. What's possible with, with 5G? This is um, a new technology that's coming about for, you know, s cell phone and mobile connections and um, connectivity. Uh, I'm not a complete expert on it, but really the, the things that will be more possible is, is faster and more reliable communication. So, you know, right now, one of the things that uh, I don't like about talking on a cell phone is the little delays that happen. I say something and then there's this momentary awkward pause before someone hears it and they say something back because you've got things going through the towers and there's, you know, distance traveled and processing of all the data. 5G is really going to make that become much more seamless because the, the, the communications will happen more quickly. Um, there'll be uh, higher bandwidth of the communications. And so that gives great capabilities to things you'll want to be doing with, with mobile devices and with robots to where, um, you can now start doing things that are more close to what we call real time, where you take an input, you want to res respond to it quickly, um, and you can actually transmit some of that data over 5G to a nearby uh, station and get data back quickly enough that it's not going to be too much of a delay for the processing. So um, it'll, it'll really help a lot with being able to do smart city development. And that's another thing that's being developed in the Contextual Robotics Institute. Uh, Professor Todd Hilton is really focused on smart cities. And the idea is uh, ground vehicles, air vehicles, smart sensors, all talking to each other in, in an urban environment and being able to communicate very quickly so that things can operate smoothly and efficiently. So let's talk a bit about how you got to the Contextual Robotics Institute. You know, what were your interests and what led you to the Contextual Robotics Institute? It goes back a ways. So when I was an undergraduate mechanical engineering student, uh, I wrote my bachelor's th thesis on a robotic system. Uh, it was building a, uh, a calibration system for being able to um, accurately put rivets on aircraft for the Boeing Corporation. And I started working on that and I thought, this is it, this is my future, I'm gonna be a robotics guy. And then I started looking for jobs toward the end of that, uh, my undergraduate time and realized, oh, if I wanna do robotics, I can move to Detroit or Tokyo. Um, there really wasn't a lot going on. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I'll get my career started in San Diego and the robotics field will pick up in the next five years and then I can really get into it. Well, it's been a bit more than five years, um, but it's taken a while and I've um, had a path where I've really tried to keep myself focused as much as I could on robotics and robotics development. And so had a few great opportunities here in San Diego, including Vision Robotics, where we were building really cool robots for agriculture, and then 3D Robotics building drones. And during my time at 3D Robotics, I got to uh, meet the Dean of Engineering at UCSD, Al Pisano, who, if you ever get a chance to talk with him, he's a fascinating character and he just loves robots. And so we developed a, a nice friendship and interacted regularly. 
And he let me know when he was starting to develop this concept of the Contextual Robotics Institute. And I told him, Al, I really want to be involved in this. You know, how can I get myself engaged? And so he introduced me to Henrik, and we found a position where I was able to come in and start helping out there. So you oversaw the design of the aerodrome. How did that work begin, and how did you get involved uh, in that role? Well, it began with just with some sort of um, brainstorming with uh, Dean Pisano and uh, Professor Christensen and myself uh, thinking about how can we make a place where we can fly UAVs that will be um, uh, safe and that will give people access to a, a good environment where they can do some great research. And we originally thought we were going to do an indoor facility uh, right next to where the aerodrome is now. There's a, a really great lab. It's called the High Bay Physics Lab, and it's... Um, very tall indoor space. It's about 70 feet tall and has a big open area. So we thought we could fly around in there. Turned out some uh, campus logistical issues and uh, ownership of the space caused us to think, okay, let's start out building an outside facility. So then we started with the concept of let's build a facility right outside there in the parking lot. But also we've got big doors that go from the parking lot to the high bay physics lab. So if we um, think carefully about this and set it up well, we can ultimately make a, an environment where we can fly both outdoor and indoor, which is a really unique setting so that we can say, okay, what happens when you fly through a window into a building and suddenly you no longer have GPS and you've got to, you know, use visual cues to navigate and to be able to go back and forth. So the concept seemed great. So then we started, you know, just drawing some pictures and whiteboarding the idea, um, and eventually went out and hired a, an architectural firm to be able to help us with uh, flushing out the design and, and then put together a, a project plan, uh, got some contractors, started digging holes, putting up pillars, and uh, got the whole thing built. What's kind of a typical day for you at the aerodrome? Well, I'm, uh, at this point, I'm generally just involved with sort of... Um, helping to oversee the, the scheduling and the interaction with folks. So I, I'm there on a regular basis, just making sure everything's operational. Um, just stopped by the other day and had a look and verified that everything's working. Um, and then interacting with the students and the, uh, the professors that want to do testing in there. And when the testing happens, a lot of times I will go down and just join just so I can see what's happening and sort of get some pictures and videos. Uh, but for the most part, I'm, you know, a bit hands-off and just making sure it's all running well. Is anyone allowed in the aerodrome? Can anyone just come in and test their ideas? It's it's open to all of the UCSD community and then with with special dispensation for industry and other folks. So, you know, there's no rules that say there's anyone that can't use it. But for, you know, outside industry and uh and other folks that would want to come in, there's there's a bit more paperwork and challenges to make sure that uh, it's all authorized and uh, and for the right use. Do you have any advice to uh, engineers, you know, going from an idea to a design to a finished product? I've had a lot of experience with taking ideas to reality and um, learned a lot of those uh, startup lessons from sort of the school of startup hard knocks. Um, as you know, it's it's a challenge to to take an idea, to build it up, and to actually make it uh, commercially viable. And one of the things that I've seen a lot of startups do, and I, I'm just always astonished that it happens, but it it does, is 
someone will come up with a great idea, an amazing idea, and think, I can do this thing that's, you know, more capable, cooler, faster, more impressive than anything that's ever been done. And they'll take this idea and they'll develop it and they'll create some cool product. And then they'll think, okay, now all I have to do is find someone that will buy this. Um, and that's really the, the wrong way to go about developing an idea. You know, if you have an idea that you think is great, before you start developing it, you need, really need to get a sense of how useful is it? What problem am I solving? Um, who's interested in solving that problem? And how is this going to make their life better or more economical? So don't focus on the cool idea first. Focus on what's the problem you're trying to solve first, and then figure out how you can put an idea to use. So even though it's not the most fun part of inventing, it's the part that will help you achieve success is to be able to do some research in advance and talk to people and look at, you know, real problems in the world and do some, you know, research to say, okay, it's, it's very clear that everyone is stuck with this situation. And if I can do something that makes the situation better for all of them, then I can see who would ultimately want to, you know, buy my technology or put something to use. So that's at least just for starters, that's what you need to be thinking about as you're thinking about how to develop an idea. And then once you have, you know, a concept, something that you want to solve, an idea that you think you could put to use, the best advice that I would give is no matter how great your idea is, no matter how smart you are, there's always somebody else who has another good idea. And there's always somebody who's smarter or had more experience with what you're looking at. Uh, so from my personal experience, I have found I do best if I spend a lot of time talking to the smart people I know. Go find smart people. And if you don't know them, go do some research. Go, you know, search on the web and use keywords to think about who else is involved in the technology that you're interested in developing and start reach reaching out to people. Send emails to people that you find on the web and say, hey, I've got this, you know, interesting idea or I want to learn more about this because... You'll always be impressed by how much people want to help. You know, smart people who are involved in technology just love to collaborate. I found most of the smartest people I've worked with are not as interested in becoming, you know, really rich and famous from what they're doing so much as they are interested in developing cool technology and collaborating with people to make something cool happen. So don't hesitate to reach out and and share your ideas with people, of course, you know, with a, with a mind to keeping your secrets to yourself at some level. But, you know, talk with people and say, hey, I have this idea. What do you think of that? And you will get great inputs from folks and you'll save yourself a lot of pain and time and money in the lab by finding out what other people have done and working with people. Does the aerodrome support that kind of interaction and collaboration that you mentioned? Sure. I mean, it's a, you know, large enough space that you can have lots of people and lots of things going on in there. And, um, and the concept of the Contextual Robotics Institute at UCSD is really to be able to bring lots of people from different areas, um, different arenas, different backgrounds into the same space. So, you know, it's uh, not an institute that's focused on one particular discipline. It's not just mechanical engineers. It's not just electrical engineers. It's a lot of folks from um, different realms that work together and think about how can we solve problems together. Um, one thing I didn't know before I started at the Contextual Robotics Institute is that 
uh, UCSD is the birthplace of cognitive science. Um, and so there are a lot of really smart people there that are always thinking about how technology uh, impacts society and vice versa. And so to be able to bring those types of people together is really valuable. You know, if, if you get a bunch of engineers in a room thinking of cool stuff to do, and then they launch their technology and you have other people who aren't engineers that later on say, that doesn't really work. You can't fly those things around here. Um, you run into some challenges. But at UCSD, you've got this great opportunity to bring all these different minds together and say, you know, how does this impact, you know, the, the technology and, and uh, industry and think people that will be using it and, and how will these things sort of interact with humans. Tim, what's most exciting to you about the work that you're doing? I just love the concept of being able to use technology to make people's lives um, work better or to make people be more efficient. When you can find a way to get robots to help out with those types of things and, and make people's lives uh, safer or more interesting, that to me is just the, the nirvana of robotic development. You know, what a, what a cool thing that we could have a machine do that and we don't have to put a person um, in harm's way. Well, Tim McConnell, thanks so much for being on Here's an Idea today. I appreciate it. This has been fun. To our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about the technology featured in today's interview, go to techbriefs.com slash podcast. Here you can also find our previous episodes of Here's an Idea. You can also get these episodes from your favorite podcast provider like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. I'm Billy Hurley. Thanks for being with us on Here's an Idea.